Are you ready to turn your investments into retirement income? Listen in as Jeremy Kyle and his guests reveal ways you can make smarter retirement, investment, and tax planning decisions to achieve your ideal retirement. You will learn more about your money so you can feel better about your money and make better money decisions. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Retirement Revealed. I'm your host, Jeremy Kyle, and we're here to turn your retirement savings into a consistent income. Although today we're not talking so much income, we're talking insurance, and we've got Scott Witt here live in the studio because uh, you're local to New Berlin. I'm local to New Berlin. Welcome to uh, the show. I am. Thanks, Jeremy. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, and we got connected. I reached out to you on, on LinkedIn because you are the only fee-only insurance advisor that I know of. I've, I've seen your stuff for, for years, and I thought you're someone I want to get connected with and let the... Uh, let the folks in our show hear about you too. Tell us what's a fee-only insurance advisor. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. We are a rare breed. I think there's only maybe a handful of us uh, in the entire country. The basic distinction is that I don't sell any products. I only offer advice and my compensation is either on an hourly or a project fee basis. And because of that, I can serve as a true fiduciary for my clients um, because I don't have a vested interest in the recommendations I make. Yeah, so people have heard that term fiduciary before on the investment side probably a lot more fee-only investment advisors than fee-only insurance advisors. Why would somebody reach out or even find a, why would they be looking for a fee-only insurance advisor? Sure. Well, I mean, as you know, the insurance world is very messy with, you know, life insurance, annuities, long-term care insurance. Um, it's very, very confusing, very complex. And, you know, a lot of moving, a lot of moving, um, pieces and there's a lot of um, dollars involved. And so if somebody wants an independent opinion, an unbiased opinion, um, they might turn to a fee-only insurance advisor and they know that the advice that they get can truly be fiduciary because there is no vested interest in the outcome of the case. A fee-only insurance advisor is going to get paid the same regardless of the decisions that the client makes. Yeah, and you use their term messy. And I think you're referring more to the idea that there's commissions that are involved. Uh, the commissions aren't even transparent. Tell us a little bit more about that. What's what's going on with yeah. kind of the general insurance landscape? And I mean, not only that, but I, you know, they're they're. I think insurance contracts are difficult for lay people to understand. And I mean, in all honesty, there's a lot of agents selling products out there that they don't necessarily truly understand, or what they do understand is just what they've been trained by their home offices. And you mentioned commissions. Um, something that's not very well understood is that in the world of life insurance, there are certain types of products where there is great commission flexibility. And depending on how a policy is designed, that level of commission may range from close to eating up your entire first year premium all the way down to barely touching any of your first year premium. And so there is a great amount of disparity between the level of agent compensation that exists in various designs. Yeah, it's interesting, this whole idea of design, because people might affirm that, oh, insurance is an investment, and we, we can talk about it, whether it's truly an investment or not. But let's pretend it is an investment, and you put $5,000 in, if only $200 actually goes in the cash, because 4800 went out for the commission, <laughs> doesn't matter what the returns are, you're, you're not getting much <laughs> out of that. Yeah, great point. The typical whole life insurance policy that sold often does have a zero first year cash value. And so from the client's perspective, the entire first year premium is basically a sunk cost. From that point, it might start to gain some ground and start to look good. But when you're starting that far behind, 
it's hard to make up that ground. In contrast with certain companies and certain types of designs, if you put $5,000 of premium into a policy, you might be able to get 4,000 or even 4,500 of first year cash value. And in some extreme designs, if you got a decent return uh, in your first year, we might be able to get that first year cash value actually close to 5,000, the amount that you put in. Yeah, that sounds a lot better. And of course you said earlier, uh, some insurance agents don't understand the policy. Tell us a bit about your background because you, you probably know a little bit more about the insurance industry and world and pricing and risk and all that stuff than the average person. Yeah. Tell us about that. So I'm an actuary. I um, started my career at Northwestern Mutual uh, in 1995 and I worked there for 10 years. And then in 2005, um, I started to get a little bit of an entrepreneurial itch and I was approached by a gentleman named Peter Cott, who was one of really only two fee-only insurance advisors uh, in the nation at that point. Uh, he operated out of Michigan, and I joined Peter shortly thereafter, um, worked for him for a couple years. It didn't take me very long to realize that if you're number two in a two-person shop, that's not really much of an entrepreneur. Uh, and so pretty quickly, I looked for an opportunity to start my own business and in... 2007, uh, I started Wit Actuarial Services, and since that time, um, I've been operating in, the, in this fee-only insurance advisory space. Uh, it's a great combination of, of the things that, that interest me, working with people, problem-solving, obviously there's finance involved, and I get to use my actuarial skills on a daily basis. So it's really a great fit for the background and the interest that I have. Yeah, I believe it. I imagine you might have a similar background to me. I grew up loving these math logic puzzles, which seems weird. And my, <laughs> my kids, you know, in fifth, sixth grade now, she's got these math logic puzzles for extra credit work. I just, or extra credit school. I just love them. You know, I just love putting that together, kind of solving. You know, it's the stuff like uh, Mary is standing in front of Jane and Tom is taller than the person that's two people in front of him. <laughs> but that's what uh, life insurance uh, retirement is. It's a, it's a huge puzzle that you get one shot at doing. It's not like there's a do-over a lot yeah. of times. You bought the insurance policy, it's too late, you pay the commission a lot of times. Uh, you, you make your choice with pensions and social security. Uh, so that's great, you, you're applying your kind of ability and background and, and desires to to the life insurance world. And you're rare, you're rare breed, like you said. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things I really enjoy is that there's not a cookie cutter nature to what I do. Every case is unique. Every client's goals and objectives are different. Their health situation, their financial situation, their risk tolerance, their attitudes toward inheritance, their attitudes toward their own longevity, their desire to spend. I know, I know you do a lot of work in the retirement planning uh, area, and there, there's just so many things that are intertwined that no two cases are alike. And so the fact that I'm a one-person shop that customizes the solutions to every client I have, I think is a really nice fit. That's great. Now, now, who are the type of people maybe reaching out to? Like, kind of what kind of cases? What are you doing for people? Sure. So, I would say the the vast majority of my cases involve life insurance, well over fifty percent, and then I would say annuities are the next most common, and then long-term care would be a distant third. There's also some things I do, you know, helping people with some retirement decisions regarding lump sum versus various annuitization options for their pensions and sometimes some valuation of insurance policies, some more actuarial type things. But in terms of the types of clients that are typically hiring me, they are typically clients that have some experience with the fee for service model. 
they probably have an attorney, they probably have an accountant, and I'm not the very first person that they've ever hired on an hourly basis. So as long as somebody has the level of wealth where you know they've dealt with some other business professionals, they probably have a, a, a significant enough level of wealth for it to make sense from a benefit cost standpoint um, to utilize my services. So you don't necessarily have to be on the high end of the affluent scale, but you know, realistically, many of the people that are hiring me have six-figure incomes or net a net worth of at least five hundred thousand, if not a million. Yeah, and they're you know at that level, they're making decisions on bigger dollar amounts. So paying someone for an independent advice is is worthwhile because they might still even pay a commission to the uh, agent. Or they the, will. Uh, the yeah, company. they almost always will. I mean, there are some policies that have no commissions, but but those are very those are very rare and just a certain niche type of policy. So yeah, I think that when you get to that level of wealth, if you look at the benefit cost trade-off and you look at the size of my potential fee, which often might be a thousand or two thousand dollars, if you compare that to a value of hundreds of thousands of dollars that's tied up in an insurance portfolio or or future dollars that you might be allocating, if you convert that to a basis point equivalent and think about it as an assets under management type fee, it's not it's not very large. And yeah, furthermore, when you when you consider that it's a one-time fee, the nature of my work, if I do a good job, people don't have to hire me on an annual basis. I may never hear from them, maybe ever again, or it might be five, 10, 15 years down the road when they have a material change uh, in their health, in their life circumstances, uh, their goals and objectives. Um, so it's it's not as if I'm trying to set up a perpetuity and work with these people on an annual basis. It's the type of thing where if you do the job right, you may never have to revisit it again, or it might be many, many years down the road. Yeah, and, it's, and that's why we, I think we connect so well on this level is that with retirement, you are making a one-time decision on your social security, on your Medicare, on your pension a lot of times. You know, with your insurances, it's basically the same. Like they call it whole life for a reason. It's supposed to be there for your whole life. You're usually not switching your whole <laughs> life insurances around. You probably shouldn't be switching. If your agent's telling you to switch your whole life insurance around quite often, well, they're getting a new commission every time. Maybe talk to someone like Scott first. Uh, yeah. Or even long-term care insurance. Typically, well, not even typically, all the time, insurance for long-term care gets more expensive as you age. So it's not like you say, oh, I'm 50, this ought to be a good enough long-term care for me, and then 10 years down the road, I'll switch it, then I'll switch it again. You know, these are one-time decisions. So yeah. why not take the time, the effort, the money to to get it right? I, I would go so far as to say that maybe it's not 100%, but maybe 99% of the time when a policy is being replaced, it's evidence that there was a mistake. There was either a mistake that was made at the time that the policy was issued, maybe the client didn't understand it, maybe they couldn't afford it, maybe it was the right, the wrong kind of coverage, the wrong company, or a mistake is being made when the policy is being replaced. Maybe the original agent isn't around to champion the existing policy, to possibly reform it, to convince the client why it makes sense to keep it, and the only agent that's in the mix is a new agent that's pushing a new policy because that's the only way they're gonna get compensated. Yeah. So. Most of the times when there's a replacement, either a mistake was made at issue or there's a mistake being made at replacement. Now that said, there are many policies out there where a mistake was made at issue and maybe it does make sense to replace the policy. You know, maybe you don't want to throw good money after bad, but nonetheless, when a, when a replacement occurs, 
usually it's evidence that some somewhere along the way a mistake was made and ideally if you work with somebody like me you're not going to make those mistakes and the policies that my clients are purchasing are not policies that are going to be replaced in the future yeah and you're coming in you're not making assumptions you're not being trained by one specific uh insurance company i'll give you an example of maybe an assumption i've i've made and so uh, i've always made the assumption that generally the older insurance policy is probably a better deal right because you, you don't have to pay the new commission to the new policy sometimes the uh, interest rates are actually higher on older policies things like that so my uh, my wife has a MetLife insurance policy from you know 40 years ago now her parents took it out when she was born and for years and years they'd say here's the $80 bill aren't you gonna move it over because I have my insurance license so they're like why don't you just cash it in or do something I said it's an old policy it's a you know it's gonna be better but I never actually looked so one time I got the bill and I thought, what am I doing? I, I, I shouldn't make an assumption. And so I took a look in this $80 a year policy, which isn't much. I moved it over to a single premium whole life, which you know what, what that is. The death benefit was higher, the dividend was higher, and I was not paying $80 a year anymore. <laughs> and I thought, boy, that, that thankfully that was me. I made the mistake on, I suppose, yeah. uh, to make an assumption. But that's what's so great about coming in fresh. If you are anything, anything in life, your social security decision, your insurance decision, uh, annuities, there's a lot of assumptions that are out there, maybe things people have heard. And just coming in and understanding what's going on with the existing situation, the potential situations. So I, I'm done making assumptions. I, I generally don't, but I made that assumption and, and thankfully I got to practice and learn on me. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great, that's a great point. And I think, I think by and large, unless you're in the insurance industry, you don't know what you don't know. And people look at the premium that they're paying and they think that that's the cost of the insurance mm -hmm. policy but it's much more complicated than that with with life insurance life insurance is vastly more complicated than mutual funds and think of it this way everybody feels like they're paying the same price everybody thinks they're getting let's make this an automobile analogy everybody thinks they're getting a luxury vehicle for the price they're paying their agent may have told them that they may have told themselves that over the year over the years they may believe that but the reality is only very few people are actually driving a luxury car most people are getting some sort of intermediate car and then there are some people who are getting just an absolute budget vehicle and they have no idea they, they went through a whole life thinking they were driving a mercedes and really they're driving a renault le car or you know <laughs> right. something that doesn't exist Perfect. anymore that uh, i'm not going to offend Love any it. offend anybody but yeah it's it's so complicated though that people will go 40 or 50 years of their lifetime They'll hire me and they'll tell me, oh, that policy, that's a, that's a great policy. We, we're not going to get rid of that policy. And I have to be very careful how I talk with my clients about these policies that they've, they've grown a psychological attachment to. Um, they may want to keep the policies for reasons that have nothing to do with the underlying financials. And you know, early in my career, I thought being right was more important than anything. And, you know, on more than one occasion, I rubbed some people the wrong way just by trying to correct them. Like, well, that, that isn't a good policy. That, that was a bad policy. And, mm -hmm. you know, your agent didn't necessarily do right by you. Now that I've been doing this a long time, I understand a little, a little softer touch is required. And, you know, I'm much more aware of the, some of the psychology that's involved with these ownership decisions that, that people have made, you know, 20, 30, even 40 or 50 years ago. 
And so that it, it's not always just about the math, but it's also about what the client believes and what makes them feel good about the situation. So, I mean, that's just another factor that gets that gets tossed into the uh, the muddy waters at times. Yeah. Well, speaking of ownership and comparing it to a car, like you take your car in for regular oil changes and checkups. You take yourself in for checkups, things like that. A lot of people will buy the insurance policy, kind of take the paperwork and throw it in the drawer kind of thing and just expect it to last uh, that way forever. And there's so many things that change. If the company or the policy didn't change, just the environment changed, the interest rates, uh, something called mortality rates, even you, your own personal life might have changed, right? There's so many things that uh, can change. You can't just assume, there's that assume word again. Right. You can't just assume that the decisions you make and the way you put that policy together five years ago or 50 years ago are still valid today. And something I see time and time again, um, there are many policies out there that are a ticking time bomb. You know, Insurance is one of those things that people wanna get the most they can possibly get for the least they can possibly spend. So many people along the way when they bought a whole life insurance policy or, or a universal life insurance policy that was intended to last for their whole of life, they put in the absolute least amount of funding. And that illustration when they purchased the policy maybe showed the policy just barely staying alive until age 100 or some age that they thought was appropriate for the coverage to last. As you know, we've been in a declining interest rate environment now for almost 20 years within the insurance industry in terms of what rates they're crediting. Um, they may have even bought a variable policy where they were assuming uh, you know, really attractive returns. If those returns don't come to fruition, now that policy that originally looked like it was going to last forever, now might fall apart at age 90, age 85, and that coverage that a client was counting on to last for their whole of life, they may now realize when they get to be 75 or 80 years old that they're faced with an impossible decision. They either have to roll the dice to see if they're going to outlive the policy or they have to they have to alter the policy in some significant way, dump in a bunch more premium, scale back on the death benefit, and it can create a lot of angst within a family who maybe was counting on that as as a as an inheritance. There might have been other estate planning around that policy, but this all stems back to people having sort of a an index mutual fund mindset. I bought this I put it in the shelf. I'm never going to look at it. As long as I don't touch it, it it's going to be great. But you can't do that with life insurance. It's too complicated. Periodically, you may not have to hire somebody like me, but you have to pay attention. You have to look, look at the annual statements. You have to get in-force illustrations so you know what the projections are going uh, into the future if the status quo holds. And almost anybody can look at those in-force illustrations and glean some useful information from them. You don't need to hire a, an expert just to, to look at an in-force illustration. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we're gonna move from assumptions to rules and generalities. I think those are better. Sure. And we'll go with rule number one is every year when you get that annual statement, take a look at it because it'll tell you exactly uh, that projection of what's gonna gonna happen. Although some statements are pretty light on details. Yeah, they don't do, they don't necessarily yeah. all have those projections. You so, may you may need to take that next step and and have your agent or or the company provide that. And that's called a current illustration. And, and yeah, a current, agent a current enforce illustration. Perfect. Current enforce illustration. And one thing that's really problematic in the insurance industry is um, I believe I heard a statistic that over half of all life insurance policies are what they call orphan policies. They are policies that are not being serviced 
by the agent that originally sold the policy. For the most part, that means nobody's getting compensated to service those policies. And so you have a lot of listeners out there that have policies that no longer have the original writing agent around. Maybe they're with a different company. Maybe they're out of the business. Maybe they've retired or maybe they've passed away. And so there's nobody really looking out for the best interests of that client. And even if you get a new agent who quote unquote is servicing the policy, it's really a crapshoot whether or not that agent is doing right by the client or not, or are they just trying to appease them until they can sell another policy. And so you need to be your own advocate. You you can't assume that everything is working out fine. You got to get your hands dirty a little bit. Look at that statement get on hold with your insurance company or your agent if you need to you know find out who is servicing the policy and you have to be forceful you have to demand to see an enforce illustration you have the right to get that information no matter much no matter how much pushback you may encounter and i can't think of a situation where acquiring more knowledge is going to be <laughs> detrimental you may not like the answer but better to know where you stand than get another 10 or 15 years down the road and have the hammer dropped on you. Yeah, that's for sure. It's Jeremy Kyle here, and I know you're listening to the Retirement Reveal Podcast because you want to learn more about making great retirement decisions. I've created a free video course for you to do just that. Head over to 5stepretirementplan.com and sign up to receive this video training right in your email inbox. We broke down our five-step retirement plan into bite-sized videos so you can get started on the retirement, investment, and tax planning you need to create a consistent retirement income. Go to 5stepretirementplan.com. Use the number or spell it out. You'll get there either way. 5stepretirementplan.com. Thanks for listening. And now for the rest of the show. All right, so that's our first rule is get the current in-force illustration. Let's see if we come up with some other rules while we're talking. Uh, some generalities. Give us, uh, of course, everyone should be you know, looking at their own details, their own situation, finding someone to trust. But in general, we'll talk about some generalities. Why would someone buy a whole life or cash value insurance instead of term insurance? Well, I mean, there there are some situations clearly where you need coverage for the whole of your life. Let's say there was a special needs situation where a couple wanted to make sure that a child was going to be taken care of in the event that that one or both of them passed away. And particularly if that child had a life expectancy that maybe wasn't significantly altered, but was going to be unable to provide an independent income for themselves. So that could be a situation where that couple knows that at the time of their second death, they need to have a significant amount of money made available to take care of that child. So, I mean, that's clearly a situation where a whole life policy could make sense. There are other situations where life insurance can essentially be viewed as an investment, um, a substitute for investing in taxable conservative investments. So as, as a substitute for taxable bonds or just money sitting in a money market. And there can be some legit legitimacy to that. I would say that there are several prerequisites that need to be satisfied. Um, you need to be somebody that's probably maxed out all of your other tax advantaged savings opportunities. You need to be somebody that has an eye on generational wealth. If you're somebody that wants to die with your last dollar in your pocket and spend it all, almost by definition, a whole life insurance policy isn't going to make sense for you. And so those are things. Oh, and then I would say too, that you need to be you need to be at a level of wealth where you feel that 
your tax rates in the future, whether you believe tax rates are going up or whether you just believe your level of income is going to be such that that you want to avoid taxes, if you feel that your tax rates in the future are going to be lower than they are today, then allocating some of your wealth into a cash value life insurance policy can make some sense. But those prerequisites narrow the field of applicants for which life insurance makes sense as an investment considerably. There are far more people out there being sold the idea of life insurance as a forced savings vehicle that I would argue it probably doesn't make sense. Um, If you don't have the discipline to save and the only way you can do that is with buying a life insurance policy, I guess maybe that's better than nothing. But if you lack that basic level of discipline, you're going to have a hard time satisfying your retirement goals. And so of all the reasons to buy a cash value policy, it being a forced savings plan is probably the least favorite um, because those, those people need to find discipline in other areas of their financial life in order to achieve their financial goals. Um, Just being forced to buy a cash value policy is not going to help them achieve other goals. Well, and forced is an interesting term because uh, you don't have to pay the premium. It's just you don't get the policy if you don't pay the premium. It's something like 50% of cash value insurance policies that the person stops paying the premium within 10 years. I don't know the exact numbers, but something like that. Does that sound about right? I don't know the exact number either, but I mean, there's a reason that for the old adage that insurance is sold and not bought. A lot of people are purchasing it almost against their will. And then five years down the road, let's say the original agent isn't around, people get that annual premium notice and they start asking themselves now, why do we buy this again? I mean, we've put in $20,000 into this thing and after five years, the cash value is only $10,000 and they just lose um, zest for continuing on with with the policy. And then what may have been an okay deal to start with turns into a bad deal because the policy isn't maintained properly. And then you do get into a situation where maybe you're throwing good money after bad. Sure. Now, speaking of zest for deals, I hear people telling me about, hey, there's this life insurance retirement plan. What do you think of, of that? <laughs> um, I do think... I do think there's an element of truth to many of the marketing gimmicks that are out there, but like like many gimmicks, they run with that element of truth and can distort it into something that that uh, might be too good to be true. I look at cash value life insurance as a very flexible tool, and I have a you know a significant amount of um, cash value life insurance just in our own family. I view it as a quasi conservative investment. I view it as a source of liquidity in the event of an emergency or perhaps a buying opportunity if there was a market downturn or just something came up where we wanted to tap into an emergency fund, if you will. And because of this core piece of our portfolio being very stable and not volatile at all, I feel like it gives me additional confidence and peace of mind to invest more aggressively with the rest of my portfolio than I otherwise would. And so in my own particular situation, I have more of a barbell approach. My conservative funds are in cash value life insurance and my aggressive funds are at the other end of the spectrum and I don't have a lot in the middle. And I feel like the existence of cash value life insurance affords me that opportunity. That said, I know that that may not be right for everybody, but I do also have the flexibility to tap into the cash value life insurance in retirement 
if I wanted to. Maybe I could use it as a bridge source of income while I wait to tap into Social Security because, as, as you well know, if you're in good health, delaying um, getting your Social Security is one of the smartest financial decisions you can make. And if you've retired and you need some income, you might need to tap into some alternative source. Life insurance could potentially be one of those sources. Or I may never tap into it. Life insurance can be a great asset to hand off to the next generation because of the tax treatment. And it's because as you get older in life, your risk profile may change and the investment returns you're getting from your life insurance policy might be more attractive to you when you're 80 or 85 than they were when you were 60 or 65. So I do view that this sounds a little bit like a marketing pitch. I know that an agent might sell, but keep in mind, I'm, I'm not selling anything. I do view life insurance as a bit of a Swiss army knife when it comes to retirement planning. I don't know exactly how I'm going to use it and I may never tap into it at all, but the fact that I do have some options, I find appealing. Yeah, and you, you mentioned, I just imagine you're more of a disciplined and factual type investor than the average person. Just uh, getting I would agree bit, with that, yeah. Uh, being an actuary, you know, being in the insurance world, I, I imagine that's the case. And a lot of times uh, you hear that insurance is an investment, and yet you talked more about it's a replacement for cash. It's cash value, life insurance. It's uh, The term is cash equivalent. And in my mind, you've got things like treasury bills, you've got money markets, you've got uh, savings accounts and CDs, and you can think of cash value life insurance in that mix. Well, all those have different kind of profiles, different interest rates at different times. Uh, I've seen times when I look at that landscape and I say, oh my goodness, the cash value life insurance is the best game in town. I've seen times where the short-term annuities, there are two and three and five-year annuities, are the best game in town. There's times when the CDs are the best game in town or the money markets or the treasury bills. It's just like you said, Swiss Army Knife, having it as part of your arsenal might be something to consider. And yet it is a long-term type of commitment. I'm not gonna say investment, long-term commitment to the life insurance. And there's probably other places like maxing out your 401ks, Roth IRAs that you do first uh, before you get into that situation with, with using the cash value life insurance as an alternative to other cash equivalents. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And I, I've always been a fan of tax diversification and you don't know for sure that the life insurance tax laws will forever be unchanged. But I do have, you know, just on a personal level, I do have some concerns about having, if I were to have all of my wealth tied up in a qualified account and it's going to be taxed as ordinary income at some point in the future, so I, I do feel having some money in cash value life insurance gives me a little tax diversification that I've paid the taxes up front. That money isn't going to be taxed in the future. And I'm not so dependent on the IRS 20, 30 years down the road and what their tax rate um, is going to be. I, I will say that I think if, if you're not committed to holding the policy until death, you're making a mistake because the number one advantage that life insurance has is the tax-free nature of the death benefit. You only get that if you hold the policy until death. So if you go into a, a life insurance deal with the mindset that, ah, I'm gonna see how it goes for five or 10 years and I could always walk away from it, you're almost certainly making a mistake. You have to have the mindset that you're buying the right policy, you, you did your due diligence up front. you buy the right policy, and you're hanging on to that thing until you die. Doesn't mean you can't tap into it, but you have to at least have a shell of the policy uh, still around when you die. 
And again, that just that prerequisite is going to take a lot of buyers um, away that, that probably shouldn't be considering a policy. If, if, if we were to go through a little hypothetical exercise where I said, you know, Jeremy, what do you think the stock market's going to yield for your remaining lifetime on average? What do you think bonds are going to yield on, on, you know, on average over your remaining lifetime? I could blend that, you know, hypothetically, this is what the, the kind of insurance company that you would buy a policy from. We could blend that. They have some investment expenses. They have what they call tax and surplus charges. We could come up with a hypothetical dividend rate that that company might credit in this environment, this world you've given me. And then I can say, well, I could design a policy that can maybe get us within 50 to 100 basis points after tax return compared to that dividend rate. What I find more often than not is that a well-designed, optimized cash value life insurance policy can add somewhere between 50 and 100 basis points of annualized after-tax yield compared to the after-tax bond yield in the world that you would have outlined because for me. Because of the tax difference. 100% yep. driven by the tax difference. Yep. And so just understanding that what's driving that advantage helps people understand the importance of hanging on to that policy until death. The moment you take away the tax-free nature of the death benefit, all investment appeal of the life insurance policy relative to other options goes away. Yeah, right on. Well, you've given us a lot of uh, great information about the life insurance. Let's do some quick takes, uh, if you can, about uh, a few other areas. Sure. One of them I see all the time is these guarantee lifetime withdrawal benefit annuities. So it's the the person says, hey, you can make six to seven percent, six, seven, eight percent a year, or you'll get five percent a year for life. Tell us about those uh, because I can just see you getting ready to smile because, like, <laughs> oh my goodness, uh, the 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 marketing talk is different than the reality. Yeah, th- those are very those are very complicated to understand, and and off, often they're very complicated to analyze uh, as well. And it, it's something that that I find challenging um, to talk about with my clients. Um, as you mentioned, and they, they come in a lot of different forms, but there there's different types of riders that can be attached to a policy and in essence it's prof- it's providing some form of guaranteed retirement income. And I'm certainly a fan of having some guaranteed retirement income. It it, it allows um, there, there's a lot of positive residual effects from from having something like that. So cosmetically I certainly see the appeal there is a lot of confusion with when you know when you get a 5% return it it feels like you're getting a 5% investment return, which sounds great in today's environment, but a significant chunk of that is a return of principal. And so that that 5% is a bit of a convoluted number, and it, it certainly doesn't equate to a 5% annualized return. Well, it's just one letter difference. It's people hear 5% and they think return on my money. It's actually return of your money, right? Just one letter difference. You know, if I gave you a hundred bucks and I said, I'll give you a 5% return of your money, that means the next 20 years, I'm just giving you five bucks of your own money back before you get anything else out of it yourself. Right. And so even though you're getting 5% back there, there might, the, the, the actual return on your investment may be dramatically lower. The part that gets very confusing is that often these riders are attached to policies that have a separate account value. And so 
when a client looks at their annual statement, they may, may have an account value uh, and a, a value that they could get if they surrendered the policy or if they exchanged it elsewhere. But then there is a higher tracking value and that tracking value may be what is used to quote unquote annuitize the policy and provide this guaranteed income. And so the, the client looks at that tracking value and it looks like they're getting a tremendous return on their investment, but they're not on, on the basis of the account value. And then internally on that policy, when the company converts this higher tracking value into a guaranteed income stream, the values that they use to make that conversion may not be very attractive. And it's, it's just, it's, it's an extremely convoluted process. I'm not willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that they're all bad. And there are many policies that I've reviewed that my advice has been, you should annuitize that thing immediately. The company maybe overextended itself or by a, by a turn of events with what's, what's happened in the marketplace, the smartest thing might be to take advantage of that guaranteed income stream. And, and then it might become a, uh, an exercise. When does it make sense to exercise? If I wait another year, I'm going to get a 5% bump in this protected value that's going to be annuitized. If I wait another year, instead of getting 5% of that protected balance, I might get 5.1. And so it's, it's, it's this very complicated exercise of when is the optimal time to exercise. And it, it, it also has to take into, into account the health and longevity expectations of that individual. Generally speaking, annuitization makes more sense for healthy individuals. If you're in poor health, you may never want to annuitize. If you're not going to make it past 80 or 85, why would you be interested in a guaranteed lifetime income stream? You're one of those people that's basically subsidizing the people that are going to live to be 95 or 100 or beyond. And so, you know, we've talked about some general rules of thumbs and rules of thumb and observations. I would encourage your listeners take your health and expected longevity into account. If you think you're going to be long-lived, annuities can make a lot of sense for you. Uh, income annuities with, with guaranteed income streams. If you have a history of early deaths in your family, or if you're in poor health, or just generally have a dim view of your own longevity, the appeal of a guaranteed income stream is dramatically lower. And you might be somebody that is better off not deferring taking your social security. But those are individual situations where people have to take their own circumstances and health and longevity into account. Yeah, you get it. I'm hearing a lot of words, uh, complicated research process. I mean, these are things that uh, you ought to be looking at and, and being disciplined about it and even personalized. So we encourage everyone and we look at our clients every few years uh, at their own personal life expectancy. It's longevityillustrator.org is the easiest free way to go to figure out your own personal longevity. And so many decisions about uh, life insurance, annuities, pensions, social security have the number one factor that contributes to it is your longevity. So if there's one thing that people can do to improve their decision-making in retirement, I would just say it's understanding and learning about their own personal uh, longevity. So th thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, one. and a lot of people underestimate their own longevity. I, you know, I've got a, I, I, something I use in my, um, in my work, I've got a mortality calculator where, you know, I, I match it up with what I've observed in the industry with different rate classifications, and I convert that into a mortality table. And from that mortality table, I can look at probabilities of survival and death. And 
almost universally people are shocked when they find out what the probability is that they could live to a hundred if they were in good health and a, a couple, you know, a, a, a 80 year old couple that are both in good health, there's an incredibly high probability that one of them lives to age 100. I mean, much higher than what people would expect. So if a financial plan stops at some arbitrary age, you know, 90 or even 95, and they're told that they have a X percent chance of success, the process is actually a lot more complicated than that. And, you know, people may need to plan for a little bit further beyond the the planning horizon than what they're currently doing. Yeah, you got it. People will tell us, you know, what are the odds I make it to a certain age, whatever it is? Well, what are the odds? I can look up the odds for you in two minutes. Let's do it. You're doing yeah. the same thing, which is great. Awesome. Well, we've got uh, one more question sure. uh, for you, Scott. But before that, tell uh, tell people how can they reach out to you? How, to, how can they learn more about what you do? Sure. Um, probably the best way is to go to my website, um, witactuarialservices.com. You can send me an email or uh, a contact query from there. Um, otherwise, you can look me up. My, my office is out of my home here uh, in New Berlin. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to have a short conversation um, with people. No obligation, no fee, just kick the tires a little bit. And within probably five or 10 minutes, we can figure out whether or not my services make sense from a benefit cost standpoint. Yeah, you got it. And of course, if you're interested in learning more about what we do at the Kyle Financial Partners, you can check us out at retirement revealed.com. So that's uh, where we're at. But all right, Scott, last question, final question uh, for you. Just tell us one thing about yourself that not too many people know. And remember, this is a clean rated podcast. <laughs> uh, well, the people that know me well would know this, but uh, people elsewhere may be surprised to know that I'm absolute uh, absolute basketball junkie. Uh, I played college basketball and I've been a high school basketball coach now for 15 plus years and absolutely just love the game and uh, love the way that it's evolving and it's it's a ever uh, it's an ever-changing um, discipline and you know I love working with high school kids and uh, helping them get better and uh, learn how to play the game of basketball that's awesome well I'm sure that's a lot of fun and uh, my kids are growing up to where they're in soccer they're in volleyball they're in basketball uh, they're asking me they said hey can you coach what do you know about these sports I said all I need to know is triangles like you set up a triangle for volleyball soccer basketball you're you're like 90 percent ahead yeah you're the coach you can tell me if i'm right or not well i know i i i, I get uh i get a hard time because I, I i bring a lot of um statistical and mathematical type principles into my coaching <laughs> technique for it. sure and you know very analytical and and logical and uh yeah, no, I think there's a lot to be said. The, the way that the basketball and soccer games are going now, it's all about spacing, and a lot of that has yep. to do with, with triangles and putting putting players where the defense isn't. That's uh, exactly it. Yeah, just recognizing that uh, goes a long way towards uh, having an efficient offense. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks, Scott, for coming. You bet. Thanks for having time. me. Yeah, this is great. And thank you for listening to the Retirement Reveal podcast. We believe if you know more about your money, you'll feel better about your money and make better money decisions. Thank you for listening to the Retirement Revealed podcast. Click on the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit retirement-revealed.com to learn more. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Kyle Financial Partners. Kyle Financial Partners does not provide legal, accounting, or tax advice. Consult your attorney or tax professional. 
Representatives have general knowledge of the Social Security tenants. For complete details on your situation, contact the Social Security Administration. Kyle Financial Partners is a part of the Thrivent Advisor Network, a registered investment advisor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.